On the show today, we have a special guest. His name is Robert Green. He's written such books as The 48 Laws of Power, Mastery, The Art of Seduction, and his latest book, The Laws of Human Nature. Stay tuned. Hi, Robert, and welcome to the show. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. Um, there's a character uh, in your book, uh, The Laws of Human Nature, uh, Mr. Blunt. Uh, tell, tell us about Mr. Blunt. Well, Mr. Blunt went down in history as the person who created probably the first really great economic bubble or Ponzi scheme in history. Basically, um, he initiated what became the South Sea Company, the South Sea Bubble. And um, he decided it was a very odd scheme. It's almost a little complicated to explain. But basically at the time, this was around 1720, the English government was massively in debt for all of the uh, wars that it had been fighting. It had been building up, been fighting these wars on credit and build up massive debt. And it was kind of crushing the economy. And Mr. Blunt had this insane idea that he would take over the debt of the English government, which at the time was somewhere around 30 million pounds. And he would privatize that debt and he would turn it into a commodity and he would sell shares in it to the public. And as he sold shares and made money, this money would then pay off the debt. He would then, if it became really profitable, the government would make some money, he would make some money and he would be able to pay shareholders dividends like any kind of common stock. But um, And so when he first initiated it, people would go, what the hell is this? This is really strange. Nobody ever heard of such a thing before. And the king himself, who at the time was quite unpopular, thought that this could be a great scheme for getting rid of the debt and maybe it would make him popular, etc. And he signed on to it. and He, he invested like 100,000 pounds of his own money. And soon it caught on and everybody in England was investing. And that includes royalty, that includes people who were servants, who uh, you know, who were like charwomen, etc., prostitutes, street prostitutes, and people like Isaac Newton poured almost all of his life savings into it. And he started as the price went up for like a stock. Obviously, the price kept going up as more people bought in. He started paying dividends. People were like, "This is incredible," and people were making fortunes. So, you know, one time this woman went to the theater and she saw that her former maid was now occupying a, a more luxurious box in the, in the theater than she had. Pe you know, people were, were cashing out and making incredible fortunes. And some of them, you know, who were smart, took the money they made and then just got out of it. Um, and then it kept going on and on and on. And Isaac Newton himself saw more people making much more money. He initially sold his shares and then he got back in. And then like a few weeks later, the whole thing crashed. It was sort of like a Bernie Madoff scheme as um, he wasn't getting enough money in to be able to pay people back because too many people were cashing out. Any long story short, it crashed and it, it's estimated that it took the English government 80 to 100 years to recover from this fiasco. And I use the story as an illustration of the essential irrationality of the human animal. Because this is a book about the human animal. What makes us tick? 
what motivates our behavior? What are the laws that kind of govern human behavior? And I make the point that, and I'm not the only one, that we are essentially governed by our emotions. We are essentially irrational. When we see other people making fortunes in some scheme, we assume that it must be great, that there must be some validity to it, because why else would they be pouring money into it? Um, and as we make the, as, as, as the thing sort of heats up and we become more and more emotional, it gets extremely hard to think straight and to imagine, you know, what is going on here? How could this possibly work? Um, and it's the sort of, what, what's so striking is economic bubbles occur with regular frequency throughout history. You had the railroad bubble in England in the 1840s. You had most notoriously the great crash of Wall Street in 1929. You had the tech stock bubble in the end of the 90s. You had the great real estate derivative crash in 2008, and I'm skipping quite a few. And you have to sit there and you have to ask yourself, people who are in making money or into finance are usually pretty smart people. They have, you know, very great credentials, they go to, they get MBAs from Harvard, etc. Why do they keep falling every 10, 15 years for the same kind of Ponzi schemes, for the same kind of bubbles? Well, there is a built-in irrational factor into human nature. And in my book, I, I try to explain where that comes from, why we are irrational, and how we can possibly begin to become rational. It's a, it's a striking story of uh, Mr. Blunt, because he was able to fool one of the smartest men at the time, Isaac Newton. And how do you think even intelligent people fall prey to these kind of schemes? Well, yeah, I have a quote from Isaac Newton. He says, I can calculate the motions of the most of, of celestial um, stars in the heavens, but I can't calculate the madness of men. You know, first of all, um, in his case, um, he saw other people making money. And when you see other people making money, it's very hard to resist it. You don't want, it's the fear of missing out. Why would I be the only one who's not getting involved in this? It gives it this sort of kind of a validity when other people are doing something. It becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. It has a viral effect. If other people are making money, there must be a reason. It must be legitimate. And so that's what hopes a lot of people in. The other thing that hooks people in is the lure of easy money. And this goes back thousands of years ago. You can read about it in the Bible. You can read about Nero, the Emperor Nero, and his great scheme that he had as well to make a fortune on gold mines. People are always in the search for easy money. I don't want to have to work. I don't want to have to spend 10 years getting a degree and struggling away and amassing a fortune and all that that requires. If I could make, you know, $10 million in one week of this investment, how can I resist that? So these are the kinds of things that appeal to our human nature, to our to the animal side of our nature. You know, the idea that we don't have to spend so much time making this much money. And then look, other people are doing it. I'm going to be missing out. Um, do you think uh, psychopaths, are masters of emotional manipulation. Most often they are. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a chapter in the book about narcissism and empathy. And I'm trying to make the point in the book. I, I, don't, I don't like 
people thinking that they're different. I don't like people thinking, oh, I'm not a narcissist. He is one or she's one. I'm not aggressive. They are. I'm not a bad person. They are. I'm trying to make the point in the book that everybody is implicated in these laws that I'm spelling out. So in the narcissism chapter, I make the point that we all are born self-absorbed. And I explain why not, we're not born self-absorbed, why we become self-absorbed, why we have an ego that we fall in love with. But then there are types, there are toxic types, there are narcissists who are much deeper than that. Their, their self-love, their narcissism is much more profound than ours. And one of the things that I try and make the point of the flip side of self-absorption of self-love is empathy, the ability to get inside the minds of other people, to feel their emotions, to participate in their way of thinking, to try and understand what motivates them. It's a very powerful, unique tool that we humans possess, probably the source of our great power as a species. But what psychopathic people possess is they actually have a perverted form of empathy. They are able to think inside of people. They're able to think what motivates them. They're able to think of, you know, what their desires are. But they're not feeling what the other person is feeling. They're simply thinking. They're able to go, this person really needs money and they're, they're desperate for it. All right, I'm going to manipulate them. I'm going to get them using that lure. I'm going to get them to do things for me. So they're able to make... Is that, is that the difference between analytical empathy and visceral empathy? Well, to a degree, but yes, I, w- I would say to a degree. The main thing about empathy that I'm trying to say is that it has to be an emotional thing. It has to be... You, you participate not just in the thoughts and the desires of other people, but you share their feelings. You understand their predicament. You understand their problems. You don't use that information to overtly manipulate them in some evil way. You use it in a way to understand them. And with that understanding, you can create a deeper connection. But psychopaths, for whatever reason, and we can go into, we could spend hours discussing why, don't feel, don't have that emotional connection. And it's, it's very kind of diabolical because without that emotional connection, they are able, they feel, they feel uh, licensed to do whatever they want. If they don't feel what they're doing to someone is manipulating them, is getting them to do something that they really don't want to do, that they're going to regret later, then they're not going to have any second thoughts about it. They're justified to do whatever they want. Um, and I talk in the book about Stalin, Joseph Stalin, who was an incredible narcissist. Um, and I explain, you know, where his narcissism came from. And what strikes you when you read Joseph Stalin's biography, any of his biographies, he, he's, you know, one of the great criminals in history. He's responsible for perhaps the deaths of 80 million Russians, if you add up all of the, the wars and the collectivizations and all these different things and the show trials, the purges. Anyway, but you read his biography and everyone is charmed by him. Thinking, wow, what a great man. He likes me. You know, and he had charisma. And you, you have to wonder what, what, what was going on here. Well, Stalin is what we're talking about. He could actually read your mind. He could actually think inside you. He could actually understand what made you tick. But he didn't feel any empathy towards you. He didn't feel any bond. He used that information against you 
to somehow figure out a way to manipulate you in some rather large way. Yeah, one thing about Stalin that I always uh, remember when anyone talks about him is uh, when he received a phone call from the Germans saying they've captured his son, and he replied by saying, what son? Yeah. Yes. Basically, um, he, he was a, a pretty nightmarish father, <clears throat> except with his one daughter, Svetlana. But yeah, um, his whole idea was if he allowed himself to be captured, he can't be my son. And so um, yeah, that kind of gives you a good sense of, where he's, where, of what he's about. On the flip side, what if someone is too empathetic and gets burned by someone? Isn't, doesn't that go against the human imperative to survive and thrive? Yes, and I, I agree with that. And I make the point in the chapter that there are people out there who are toxic. In fact, a major theme in the laws of human nature is that there are many different toxic types. And I kind of list them and enumerate them and describe them. And so... If you are simply, if you're meeting Stalin and you simply empathize with him and you try to understand where he's coming from and you feel sorry for him, then you you open yourself up to being used by that person. But my point is you have a little bit with your empathy. I mix it also with the analytical. You talked about that earlier. There's the visceral empathy where you feel the emotions of the other person. And there's the analytical empathy where you step back and you analyze who this person is and what makes them tick. And even with someone who's a toxic character, who is a psychopath, if you will, your ability to understand them, to understand what makes them tick, will be a major benefit in not falling under their spell. So I talked in one of my previous books about the great Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich, who um, was tormented by Stalin continuously. And when he met him, he in his mind thought, I know who this guy is. He's actually just a boy who never had love from his mother. I understood his background. I understood what makes him tick. And through that knowing who Stalin was, he wasn't intimidated by him. So if you're dealing with a, a, a psychotic boss, for instance, and a psychotic boss, the psychology is nothing you can do will please them. They're going, to, they're going to be angry with you whether you do A or B. So you can never figure out what will please them. And in doing that, they keep you continually on your toes and they control the power dynamic. The moment you recognize that that's who you're dealing with, you don't have to empathize with them. In fact, the opposite. But it gives you the power now to resist them, to, to see through their game, to quit or to play along with them, but to not get emotionally involved. So it's always good to understand people, to be able to get inside their world and figure them out. But you're right. Sometimes you have to cut off that emotional part, that visceral part, and have some distance so that you don't become, you know, become their pawn or puppet. Um, and these people who are toxic psychopaths or narcissists, are they aware of their destructive behavior or, or they're not? Well, it's a great question. And... Um, You know, people will argue one way or the other. It is my opinion, going back to my earliest book, The 48 Laws of Power, that people are more conscious of their behavior than they let on. So it is my belief that someone who is truly psychopathic, they they kind of know what they're doing. They know that, you know, they're, 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 
they're not basically they're missing some kind of connection to people that they're they're often quite lonely but then at the same time you know people can think two things at the same time it's one thing i i find surprising that people don't understand this that people out on the one hand can un, on a kind of subconscious or pre-conscious level understand the games that they're playing the manipulations at the same time they can feel justified in doing it and feel like they are the victims of of other people's malevolence so a person like a stalin is extremely paranoid and and believes that he's justified to do all of the things that he does i talk i have a chapter in the book about aggression and i the poster boy for aggression i use is john d rockefeller the world's first billion, first billionaire this man was incredibly clever and incredibly aggressive but he had a narrative i call it the aggressor's narrative you might often just call it the psychopath's narrative that said i he was a very religious man he goes i am justified in creating this incredible monopoly of oil which is ruining the lives of so many people because first of all i'm religious and this is my mission to organize this business which is very chaotic and bring some order to it and make it regulated all of course which is 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 a nonsense because it's just a way of justifying him throwing hundreds of businesses out of business so that he can grab them. so these people create a narrative that justifies their behavior now purely on a on a status level on a financial level uh, do people with these toxic personalities um have an advantage when it comes to achieving their goals yes to some degree but the other side of it is that they don't they generally lack self-control i have a chapter in the book about grandiosity and the point in that chapter is most of us there is a a gap between our opinion of who we are and the reality i use the metaphor of this gap means we're just like 4 feet off the ground and that 4 feet represents how far we're divorced from the reality and studies have shown <clears throat> that most people evaluate their own intelligence their own goodness other qualities actually higher than than, than what they are they have a high self opinion but grandiose people that 4 feet can turn into 20 feet into 50 feet into a mile they're so they think that they're a god they they have the mightiest touch that nothing they can do is wrong and what usually creates that syndrome is a degree of success so if you're someone who's psychopathic or narcissistic you you're also kind of tend to be governed by very powerful emotions and you don't have a great degree of self control and as you get success and as people give you attention and as your success is validated you start taking risks you start believing you can do anything that nothing you can do is wrong that you're infallible and that's usually what is the downfall for many people of this type now do you agree with uh, do you agree with the statement people make decisions emotionally and make rational excuses for them after the fact most definitely um you know psychologists have known for a while for instance in economics they call it the economic heuristic the i'm sorry the effective heuristic which means that what governs people's economic behavior their purchasing behavior is emotions not rationality so if you decide to buy a car you don't realize to what extent 
You are influenced by advertisements, by what other people are driving, by other factors that are kind of linked to who you think you are, etc. And then afterwards, so you'll buy the car, not realizing that this is sort of underlying it. And then afterwards, you'll tell yourself or other people, well, it's the highest rate at this. It has this, you know, I read about it in, in Car and Driver. It has these specifications. It's very highly rated. You'll create a justification afterwards. And we do that all the time. So if, if I get angry at someone and I blow up and I explode, um, we don't really know where that emotion came from. Sometimes it could be that person, that specific person who triggered our angry reaction. But more often than not, it is something that happened earlier in the day. It has to deal with frustrations that go back weeks or could even deal with things from our early childhood and patterns of behavior. And this person crossed our path at the wrong time and we exploded and we got angry at them. But what we will do afterwards, instead of trying to dig out and understand where our emotional response came from, we'll create a justification, a rationalization. Oh, they're an awful person. Oh, they said this or that or the other. Oh, they were dissing me for whatever. Right. We will come up and we will rationalize it. This is an extremely um, human response. And going back to what you said just a little earlier, um, how this is this kind of uh, is used to uh, sell things to people that they don't need. Are you familiar with uh, Edward Bernays and uh, how the U.S. government hired him in the 1900s to tap into human nature? Yes, I talked about him in The Art of Seduction. He's the, actually he's the cousin of Sigmund Freud. And um, he was sort of the first great um, demonic kind of advertising genius and he would come up with incredible campaigns that um, were amazingly successful. And eventually later the government did end up hiring him. But he had an incredible understanding of human nature. But let's, you know, since World War II, the psychology departments of all of the major universities have been heavily, heavily doing studies about what motivates human behavior, about, you know, experiments and tests. And who are the groups that finance this? Who are the groups that are most interested in it? It's marketing people. It's public relations people, particularly marketing people. They have, just, they have used all of this incredible wealth of information, studies, experiments, data to manipulate, to know the weak points in the public and how to play on people's emotions. And, and we still see that today in social media where, you know, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, he's, he's, he's understands this to the 10th degree. He knows what kind of beeps and sounds and bells and whistles. He knows what kind of headlines will grab your attention, how to make that news feed sort of make you kind of continually click, etc. Yeah, and, so knowing this, though, do you think it's, it's moral for these companies to use that kind of backdoor to human nature uh, to have them purchase things that might not be beneficial to them in the long run? Well, I, I, don't, um, I don't get into the moral argument so much as you know in my books. My whole idea, my whole philosophy is to arm people with knowledge and information. So the, the uh, modus operandi of the 48 Laws of Power was, I'm going to explain to you, the reader, the, mo the tactics that powerful people use, some of which are very manipulative. 
Now, armed with that knowledge, you are not going to be so naive the next time you deal with this kind of person. If you know that someone, like in Hollywood, will get you to do the work and they'll always take the credit for it, which is what happened to me many times, then you'll know, all right, I'm going to be more careful next time. Buyer beware. So in the laws of human nature, it's a similar thing. Once you understand how people use your emotional responses, how that you, you out there are not a rational agent, that you are governed largely by your emotions, now maybe you can have the power, instead of depending on regulation to do it, which I don't think is ever going to work, I want you to have awareness and consciousness of these are the games that people play. You know, they use the color red very, very consciously because they know that's what will get attention. All right, I, I know that now. So uh, I'm going to see through that. And I'm not going to pay so much attention, whatever. Once you know the tricks that these people use, then it's hard for them to be able to keep using them. Um, I'm intrigued by a statement you made uh, uh, recently at a Google talk where you said, quote, Lots of things that we do are unconscious. It's almost like if a stranger is living inside of us. Can you expound on, on that further? Well, it's it's really not such a startling comment if you read books, particularly books on neuroscience, which I'm kind of delving a lot into now for my next book. What's your next book? Well, <laughs> it's sort of a takeoff on Chapter 18, The Laws of Human Nature, what I call the sublime um, sort of experiences that take us to the limits of our knowledge and our beliefs and we kind of go beyond our own limits and we explore this other realm that i call the sublime that and you know and it's the source of great discoveries in science of credible creativity and artists of people you know climbing mountains of going to the moon etc so i'm mining that but i'm also fascinated by the human brain itself because um There's nothing more sublime than this brain of ours, which is the most complex thing that we have ever encountered. People will study the solar systems and all, and, and all kinds of other complex systems, but none of that can compete with the insane complexity of the human brain. Now, do you think, do you think consciousness, this might be a little bit outside of the discussion on the book, but just on a side note, Do you think consciousness is responsible for gener generating reality, or is there like a tight coupling between reality well, and consciousness? Well, it's, it's whether you are a monist or a dualist. You know, it's a big argument. The dualists are Descartes, but there's mind, and there's reality out there. And most neuroscientists, and I would include myself in this, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I would include myself in this group, are monists. We believe that the mind basically creates its reality. And yes, there are things that are relatively constant, like gravity, etc. But the reality that we all live in is basically a construction of the mind. And it's very easy to demonstrate. The human brain operates as a filtering system. If, if you took this very powerful organ that's in your body, and you let in all the data that comes in with your eyes and your nose and your ears, You would be so overwhelmed, your brain would just go crazy. It would be like a computer that suddenly shut off. So what the brain does to, to conserve energy is it filters what you see. It short, gives you a shorthand. It doesn't, you don't perceive everything that's going on. And a lot of that shorthand process, that kind of um, abbreviating what, you, what gets into you, what you perceive, has to do with certain social conventions 
These are things that we believe in that we think are reality. And so we assume when we have this kind of experience that this is what it means. So a lot of what the brain does for you is it creates a kind of a reality for you. Um, some of those realities that it creates are obviously more delusional than others. But yes, definitely I'm on that on the side that the brute brain, our consciousness kind of creates the world that we perceive. Okay. But um, yeah. That's very interesting. Um, but now, do you, back to your question, though. Yeah. Um, once you understand that, once you understand the brain's processes and how it, it, it does that, you have to stop and wonder during the course of a day, how many times am I actually doing something or thinking something that comes from me? You know, I meditate every morning. I've been doing it for many years now. And as the thoughts come up to my consciousness of memories or things I have to do, I'm always aware of where did that come from? I didn't consciously will that that sudden anxiety. I didn't will that con that memory that sprang up. It just came up on its own. So many of the things that you go through through the day, you're sleepwalking. You're actually acting on autopilot. You're not aware of the processes that are going on. And so to a extent, a much greater extent than you are aware of, you are governed by unconscious processes. Do you think that nature has designed us to make emotional-based decisions because our survival depends on it? Yes. I mean, um, you'd have to go back um, into the how, uh, how our ancestors evolved and the emotional system that we evolved. First of all, you have to realize that what evolved over the course of several million years, or you can even go back further if you want to, is and, and where we were uh, half a million years ago, or let's say 300,000 years ago, where basically the same brain size was evolved that we now have. What evolved back then is not at all adapted to the environments that we live in. So we're primed to feel intense fear when it comes to snakes or any kind of shape of a snake or even the thought of a snake. And yet, you know, living in San Francisco, as I think you do or me in L.A., you know, you know, that's not something that, that you need for your survival anymore. It's, it's irrational. But so many of the things that developed over the years. Now, animals feel emotions. It's, you know, um, crocodiles and lizards have a fear response. Fear is the oldest emotion of them all. Obviously, primates have more complex emotions. And some animals like dolphins and elephants also have quite complex emotions. But we evolved emotions for almost a different purpose. We evolved them, I mean, we evolved more kind of complicated, nuanced emotions, um, like gratitude, like joy, etc. The things that, you know, I don't know if we could say that other animals feel the same, or pride. We developed these emotions um, as a form of communication before the invention of language, so that if I felt fear suddenly it would show up on my face and other people in the tribe or the group could see that and then the emotion would pass would pass through us all on a contagious level and we could react quickly without having to talk or think because we didn't have language and react as a group so emotions became a kind of a form of communicating what is going on in your mind and the other thing about emotions was they were designed to be contagious, to be viral. So 
the group could bond on feelings of fear <clears throat> or feelings of joy, etc. And all of this yes, it had a very much a survival factor, a function for it. Do you think that social media and a global manifestation is kind of like a thin layer that, that kind of falls on top of that emotional communication that goes viral? Well, basically, um, I make the point I say it in the, in the introduction, <clears throat> is that human nature kind of manipulates us. We are pawns on, the, on, the, on that chessboard. It kind of moves us around. It kind of determines so many of our actions. And so when we invent something like social media or the Internet, at first we kind of create this kind of very human sort of paradise thing where we all get to communicate, we can buy directly, etc. But slowly human nature takes over and it turns it into something very dark and ugly and it appeals to the worst in human emotions so that the viral effect, so that things like envy are now able to go to the 10th degree now because we're all very aware of what other people are doing. And I make the point in the book that envy is extremely prominent now in the world today. And it's what motivates a lot of what we're seeing happening. Um, we're not really aware of how deeply envy is, is, is pushing us around. But social media is a main factor in this. And if you look back in our history, um, primitive hunter-gatherers understood the dangers of envy, and they understood how the human animal is incredibly prone to feeling, to comparing ourselves to what other people have. It's the source of murder, it's the source of crime, it's the source of uh, all sorts of other things like that. And so they developed all kinds of ways to deal with envy. But social media becomes an outlet for some of our most primitive impulses, and these kind of take over, envy being one of them, but there are many others. Our tribalism, for instance. And so what prompted you uh, to write this amazing book, uh, The Laws of Human Nature? Well, um, several things. Um, I think that people nowadays are kind of lacking a certain, I don't mean this arrogantly because I even have to include myself in it, are, are lacking an essential understanding of other people, of their psychology. We're all becoming increasingly self-absorbed. And, it, you know, it's a function of technology, how much time we spend on with our smartphones. You know, you go to a restaurant, you look at people, and half the time they're not talking to each other or looking at each other in the eye. They're, they're consulting their phone. And when you add up, we're a social animal that's built for face-to-face -face, um, interaction. We're incredibly sensitive to the nonverbal communications of other people. Uh, we're incredibly sensitive to the smiles, to looks in people's eyes, to the tone of their voice, and to their words. And it's the source of our, of our power. And I think so many people have lost that power nowadays because they're not interacting with people. They're not paying attention. They're not observing. They're kind of operating blindly in this world. They think they know what people are thinking. They have no clue what's going on in the mind of that other person. You can be married to someone for 20 years, and you really don't understand that other person because you're not observing, you're not paying attention. You're not taking the effort to try and get inside their world. And I've noticed in the thousands of emails that I receive almost every day from people, this, the kind of pain that this causes people out there, their inability not only to not understand their boss, their colleagues, their friends, their spouse, 
but also to not understand themselves. They don't understand what motivates them. They don't understand what it is that they were meant to do in life, what their sense of purpose could be. So they're kind of operating with basically not enough knowledge about psychology, about human behavior, about human nature. And, um, and I've noticed this in my consulting work. I do consulting with people who are incredibly powerful and successful in business. And I'll always be kind of shocked. Uh, I was on the board of directors for American Apparel. Um, Dove Charney was the CEO. The CEO is a very uh, colorful character, I might say. Yes. Well, we ended up firing him. Uh, he was a friend of mine. He came to me because he was a big fan and he wanted consulting. Um, so he's about the one name that I can talk about. It's a, it's a big company. I remember I used to drive down Alameda. It's a huge, huge factory. Oh, in L.A.? Yes. Are you in L.A.? No, I'm in uh, I'm in San Francisco, but when I've driven down to L.A., I've dr- I drove down Alameda Street. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. There's this huge oh, warehouse. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the pink the pink building. Yeah, the uh, the factory was actually a thing of beauty. It's what I what I kind of fell in love with with the company and why I was seduced by Dove. Is it's it was it's an amazing factory that he created, something almost like from another century, um, but basically. Even people like him or people like Elon Musk, who I don't consult with, I'm just talking about what I see, is these are people who have incredible brilliance when it comes to business, when it comes to finance, when it comes to technology and design. But they have this huge blind spot about other people. They don't understand anything about marketing. They don't understand that what they say publicly can cause them all kinds of problems. They don't understand... You know, if they hire this person to be their partner, are they judging that person based on their character or based on some other reason like their charm or whether they're going to be a sycophantic? So they don't hire people who are best or the most competent. They hire out of emotional reasons and it causes them pain. And so the inability to know who to associate with, who to hire, what motivates people, what motivates yourself is, I believe, the source of 99% of the psychic pain that you feel in life because it causes loneliness. It causes all kinds of drama that you don't need. It causes all kinds of career mistakes and dead ends. I'm not saying my book's going to solve all that. I'm not that grandiose. But it's a book that I think will help you in that process. And um, you were, you, going back to what we were talking about earlier, how some people are able to get in your head, right? Because they have empathy, and they're able to mirror you for good reasons. But there are some who have like a low emotional uh, ability or function, and they use that to manipulate you. How can you, how can you tell the difference between a mirroring or a real empathy and a false one? Is there a way to do that? Well, it's a great question, and we could spend several hours on it. But um, there are a few things that you have to be aware of. So when you're dealing with a Joseph Stalin or I hate to say it, a quote-unquote Donald Trump. I have to lower my voice when I say that. Um, these people have track records, right? I mean, unless they're just starting out in their career, unless it's like the 21-year-old Joseph Stalin. But by the time you, you, he's in power, he has a track record, and that track record is incredibly ruthless. He has clawed his way to the top. There's blood on his hands. So don't be naive. Look at people's past. Men have blood on their hands. But people have patterns of behavior. If they've been aggressive, if they have a history of firing people and they're very volatile, 
if they if if people complain about how manipulative they are, pay attention, look at their past, do some research. The other area that's a little trickier that I do go into the book is pay attention to people's nonverbal communication. I have a very long chapter on it. It's not exhaustive because it's a subject you could write 800 pages on, but I give you a lot of clues. And you'll notice with highly narcissistic psychopathic people that they will um, look at you in the eye. They will stare at you. They will probe you. And it, there's something almost kind of, almost a little bit scary about it. Kind of predatory. Yeah. But there's no kind of emo- warmth to it. So that look at first glance could seem like they're caring, they're interested in you. They're looking you in the eye. They're like, uh-huh, really? You're saying that? Wow, interesting. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. But, uh, and so at appearance-wise, it looks like they're interested in you. But you'll notice at the same time that there's a coldness to it. The smile is not a real smile. It doesn't light up their face. And I explain to the reader what, or how, to, how to distinguish between a fake smile and a real smile. And there are ways to sort of understand the emotional response. So when someone is emotional, when they are feeling something about you, when they are genuinely moved by you, there are things that you can't disguise. Their voice has a certain lilt to it. Their body language changes. Their arms, they become more relaxed. Their arms are more open. But people who are psychopathic who are using you will just use one of those things to kind of give a signal for being attentive or charming. But the rest of their body betrays the fact that it's not real. So it's uh, it's like a truncated version of real empathy. Yeah. Um, um, so are you familiar with the, uh, with the personality disorder dark triad? And uh, what do you think about that? I've read about it, but can you remind me about what it is exactly? I mean the dark. So the dark triad, are, it's like a, three points of uh, toxicity or um, or personality disorders. One is um, psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And so when a person has these three points in their personality, they're considered dark triads. Well, I'm not one for that kind of elaborate labeling. I mean. Um you know, if you're narciss, first of all, I try to make the point that all of us are narcissists. I explain why that is the case, and I believe all of us have a Machiavellian tendencies, and that is the theme of my four- of my book, The Forty Eight Laws of Power. I get very irritated with people who use that word as if to distinguish other people from who they are. There's books that were written about chimpanzees that were calling them the Machiavellian animal. Chimpanzees can be incredibly Machiavellian. Children can be very manipulative and very Machiavellian when they want something. If children can be Machiavellian, then it's something like, Anybody can. Huh? Anybody, Anybody can. can. It's bred into us for various reasons. Now, psych- psychopath, psychopathology, I- I'm not going to go that far because I don't believe it. But a lot of these are traits that are very human. And then the question is what pushes people over the edge? just think it's a lot darker and uh, I'm very interested in that I'm interested in the things in early childhood in what creates what I call a deep narcissist it's usually some kind of break in in, in early attachments to parental parental figures etc so that to me is an extremely interesting question but I'm not so much into these kind of 
labels and numbers and statistics that kind of define people are. Because I think that things are much more fluid. I think that there's a borderline. I, I agree. I agree, too. I think the dark triad thing is more like a, a psychology trend within, within yeah. their, their circles. Yeah, because um, there are people who are on the borderline. What do you, what do you call them? You know, and then a lot of us have these traits, but we're able to control them. So I'm sorry, go on. Uh, so uh, you've spoken before about generational cycles. Um, for example, we sometimes go into revolutions. We have periods of preservation, periods of safety, and periods of crisis, which in turn comes back to the period of revolution. Uh, do you suspect that we're currently living in, uh, in the era of the revolution and at the end of the uh, crisis? Well, um, I'm not the, the expert on that, but I did write a chapter on it. <clears throat> There's a great book um, called Generations. I, I don't have the full title. I think his name is Howe. He's been studying this for years. It's an amazing book. Um, he takes all the research on it, and he shows the various patterns that generations go through. And he and people of his ilk tend to believe that what we're going through right now is what we would classify as a crisis generation. And a crisis generation is one in which the old values, the old paradigms of this world no longer have meanings. They no longer stick. It's like you have something that you stuck to the wall and, it, and the Velcro is wearing out and it's no longer sticking and it's falling off. These old values no longer are sticking in people. And, um, and in the place of that, and a lot of that comes from technology, and there are various reasons why that's happening. Um, and when people go through Human beings need meaning. They need a purpose. They need something to believe in. They need something that unifies a group of people together, a myth even, if you will. And having a crisis where things fall apart, where we don't know what to believe in, when we don't know what the world is about, when we don't know what gives our life meaning and purpose, are very painful. And as they evolve, all kinds of weird things, it's in those kind of periods that people will trend toward totalitarianism or towards all kinds of weird political type uh, games or, or parties or issues. Um, and so, but that is preparing the ground because nothing is permanent in human history. Things continually cycle. And so when you're in the middle of a crisis, you think, oh my God, the world is ending. We're all going to be dead in 20 years. Where is this going to end? But because human, our nature is that we can't stand vacuums, we can't stand the absence of purpose or values or ideals. We create them. And young people who are the engines of that meaning, of that purpose, will create that new kind of identity. And that's what the revolutionary generation will create. Um, and, you know, you could say a revolutionary generation was kind of the late boomers and through the period of the 60s and the kind of cultural revolution that they created. We can go back in history and, and talk about them. But a generation will evolve, and maybe it's the, the generation that's now coming of age. I don't know what we're calling them yet. The ones, you know, not millennials, but younger. Um, maybe that they are the revolutionary generation that will finally create some kind of new way of relating to the world, new purpose, new meaning, new values. And then, then the cycle will repeat. They'll create something new. And then the next generation will kind of build on what they created. 
and the next generation will turn conservative and everything will get boring and stultifying. And then people will stop believing and then there'll be a crisis generation in 2070. And then the crisis generation in 2084, 2090, there'll be another revolutionary uh, generation on and on and on till, till we die off. But um, so that, I, I mean, I'm of the opinion, this is not a science, mind you, because things intervene and change it. But it's pretty interesting to see the patterns. And I agree with the characterization that we are probably going through what we would call a crisis generation among okay. millennials. Okay. Finally, do you think the current president is using some of the laws uh, described in the 48 laws of power? Well, um, it's a question people have asked. Um, and um, to put it mildly, I'm not a fan of this president. Um, so I would be deeply upset if that were the case. But, you know, um, he's not somebody who reads books. I think somebody once said that he had a copy of Mein Kampf um, at his bedside, uh, which I would believe. But I don't know. Uh, he's not a reader of books. So... Um, well, I mean, he could have gotten these these kind of ideas maybe passed down from his father from somewhere else, but kind of, kind of like the ideas that are in the 48 Laws of Power. Well, he got a lot of them from Roy Kahn, probably more than his father. But, you know, there's a lot, I would say he violates more laws than he pays attention to. He pays attention to two laws, one of which he uses brilliantly and is the source of his power, and another of which he goes way too far in. When he uses to brilliant effect, he's probably the greatest genius of it all, is court attention at all cost, law number six. He knows how to suck media attention. Like, I don't know, he's the Napoleon of that. He's the Mozart of that. He knows how to, he knows what, make, because he was on television and he understands media, he understands that creating scandal, drama, continual crisis, continual sense of outrage gets him attention. And, and as B.T. Barnum said, no kind of, no attention is bad attention. He feeds off of it. And he has people, including myself, continually thinking about him. People in Indonesia are going to bed worrying about him. Nobody in history has ever had that kind of power before. So I have to salute him. He's the evil genius when it comes to law number six. And he uses it to great effect. And what's the next law that he's really good at? He uses the law of unpredictability, how to keep people in suspended terror. He thinks, and it's a negotiating tactic that he uses, he thinks that if people don't know where he's coming from, if they can't predict, if he seems insane, irrational, unpredictable, it creates fear in them. And in that, in that moment, he has power to manipulate them. If you're negotiating with someone and you have no idea of tomorrow, they're suddenly going to raise their price after what they seem... They seem to say that they're going to, you know, they agreed on a price, but that maybe tomorrow they'll go completely off somewhere else. You're afraid. And so you're on your tiptoes. And then, and then when they come in and they offer something that's a little bit worse for you, you'll grab at it. They know how to use that kind of moment where you can't predict their behavior and you're thinking about them and you're worried about them. It's a very powerful tactic, but he goes way too far with it. Um, it can kind of work in the real estate business when you're dealing with a very small, limited world. He's got a small company that's not public, and he's he's dealing with these sort of limited deals, these limited financial deals. But it's another thing when you're dealing with China and North Korea 
and all the other players involved in Iran on the world stage, they see this unpredictability and they see through it. Okay, you know, there's nothing to back it up. He's, he's just th- playing a game. So China will call his bluff on that and they'll say, all right, you're not going to be consistent with your negotiating. You're going to keep us on our toes. Like maybe tomorrow you'll offer us this and the next day, not that. All right, we'll just wait. We'll wait. We'll see you through. Perhaps you won't be reelected. We'll play the long game. North Korea understands that they can play the same game back at him. They can pretend to charm him and flatter his ego. And at the same time, kind of be incredibly wily with, with their ballistic tests, etc., and almost be equally unpredictable. And so people see through it. And, and you know, one problem that people have in their, in their thinking, which is something I discuss in my new book, but also in human nature, is this very kind of a form of human stupidity is false analogies. Well, what worked in business and in my real estate business and dealing with construction companies will now work with China and North Korea. It's a form of arrogance and grandiosity. But politics is an incredibly complicated game. And what he, the law that works for him there is actually extremely limited. But there are many laws that he violates in victory, know when to stop, you know, um, appeal to the hearts and minds of people. Um, you know, chapters about creating a broad coalition, play the perfect courtier. Um, I could go on and on and on about the many, about the many uh, laws that he violates. There are a few more that maybe he, he uses, but I think on the large on the large sense, he is not a very strategic person. He operates in a kind of visceral, almost lizard limbic system type of mind. He's kind of driven by his emotions. And that can get you somewhere in this world, a kind of a primitive way of, of evaluating people. But it's very limited. So it would make me think that he hasn't uh, really read the book because so many of the laws he violates. By the way, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, it's been a great, great interview. And where can people find out more information about you and your books? Well, um, I would send them to my old website, which we're still running. It's called Power Seduction. <clears throat> excuse me, Power Seduction and War. The and is spelled out. Power Seduction and War dot com, and there you'll find links to my first three books, as you mentioned, including the Thirty Three Strategies of War, and links to the book that I did with Fifty Cent, The Fiftieth Law, and to Mastery and to the new book. You also find links to my Instagram and my Twitter and my Facebook, as well as a, an email address where you can write to me if you wish. Okay. Um, thank you for being on the show, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure.